Dotnet Rocks episode 736 with guest John Peterson. Recorded live Tuesday, January 24th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at Franklin's.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for your pleasure of all kinds. Your nice. intellectual hedonistic pleasure. My my wife and I um, have labeled our philosophy of life, you know, our parenting style and everything, and just you know, we are um, uh, okay. responsible, responsible hedonists. Okay, I like intellectual hedonism. I think it's pretty funny. I think you you you're mentally naked. Yeah, absolutely, and also not afraid to think a thought. You know, fear fear of thought is a bad fear. So anyway. Richard, what's up in your neck of the woods? Well, supposedly when this show is published, when if you're listening to it on the day it was published, I will be hiking in the wilderness of Patagonia. You are the world traveler. Or not, because apparently there's a big freaking forest fire going on down there right now while we're recording it a few weeks before, and it's completely up in the air whether I'm going to be there or not. So there's no way to know. you You get to enjoy the time shift at this particular moment where... We are stressing over whether we can go or not. And I have hiked, uh, in a, in a, in a, a post forest fire forest before. It isn't any fun. The, the black sticky things, not that nice. And it kind of smells. It's kind of stinky. Yeah. Yeah. Not so nice. All right. Well, let's get into better know framework. Awesome. What do you got for me, buddy? What I got is something I've talked about before, I believe. Well, I've talked about it on DNR TV. Uh, you know that I'm writing this sort of Dropbox clone for the enterprise where you control where data goes, right? Nice. Yeah. Yes. We've been talking about this and I'm excited about it. It's, and I've mentioned it to a couple of folks who are going, that's a good idea. Sure it is. Cause yeah. they, it, who cares about the cloud? We don't want the cloud. I just want my files to be synced wherever. Well, there's a couple of things about the cloud. Number one, it's not always up. Yeah. The, you know, the, the know service that. level agreements are what? 70%? What did we decide that Michelle uh, was saying at the... Well, even if it's 90%, yeah. it's still down a lot. Right? Still down I mean, a the, lot. Cause, and it comes down to the internet's not that reliable. But right. that's a separate issue entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only not only that, but you, you have to trust your files to this company who yes. basically can go look at them and... Well, and yeah, we, we're going to talk about this on this show too, right? right? It's just like whose data is whose. So I think cryptography is becoming a little more... Um, you know, uh, a, you know, something a little more important than people used to think it was. So, uh, today's class is system.security.cryptography.rindle.managed. Ooh. Rindle is an algorithm that's implemented in .NET and it's spelled weird. It's spelled R-I-J-N-D-A-E-L, but it's pronounced Rindle. Sounds very Danish. Yes. And uh, I, you can look at it in the docs at tinyurl.com slash rijcrypt. And also, I did a DNR TV on cryptography, which is essentially using the um, the stuff that's in .NET to do your own SSL kind of stuff. In other words, you uh, the, the way it goes is you create an RSA key pair on the server, 
and you give the public key away and you, uh, you know, the public key goes with your client software. They request it or whatever. It's a public key. And then the client creates a Rindel key and, and a symmetric key mm-hmm. and then encrypts that with RSA public key and sends it to the server, which decrypts it with the key pair. Because it can only be decrypted with the key pair. Right. So then the two have the keys, and then essentially they can send encrypted data back and forth to each other. But the client comes up with the actual key that does the encrypting of the data. So that that's uh, – and, and you can see me do that live at dnrtv.com, or you could go to tinyurl.com slash dnrtvcrypto. Nice. If you want the actual link to the actual show, which is show 79, which I did in 2007. Wow. Yep. But hey, the, the, uh, the .NET library is what the .NET library is. And it is good cryptography is good cryptography, but that's it. So Richard, who's talking to us? I pulled a comment off of show 730. That's the one where we talked to John Papa about the Microsoft client landscape. You know what I really liked about that show? Yeah. We didn't know where it was going to go. Yep. Right? We just, we were just, you know, John Pava's now left Microsoft. He said, hey, I wanted to talk to him about, so what do you think about Silverlight now? And da, da, da. And we ended up with this really fun conversation about all of the Microsoft client technologies. And I thought it gave us a really nice overview. And apparently, the listeners felt that way too, because Alex Blount wrote a comment. Hi, Richard and Carl. And I love the order. <laughs> uh, today's show was great. It is always good to hear from Mr. Papa. He has a great insight into technology and development. I found it very interesting that you discussed the possibility of future versions of the Windows phone running WinRT. Although in principle, this sounds great and will open up many options in terms of development routes. I do see there being issues to work around. The biggest of these, obviously, is backwards compatibility with applications written in Silverlight and XNA. I'm sure this will be overcome, but I would hate to see there being a cutoff point in terms of moving all development over to WinRT space without any option to continue with Silverlight. Thanks again for the great shows. Um, Alex, first off, you know XNA doesn't run under WinRT at all? Like yeah. XNA is just out the window. That The XNA guys are the ones really getting hooped in Win8. Silverlight, I think you've shown, Carl, that a Silverlight developer is actually the closest thing to a WinRT developer that exists right now. Yes. So I actually think there's a pretty good set of migration opportunities there anyway. But uh, I think the bigger strength here is when we have one kernel, one core set of tools that run on every platform, that means they all upgrade together, they all get features together, and our skill set is transferable to any of those platforms fairly painlessly. That's really the promise of HTML. I just think that I think the WinRT potential is higher than that. But these are early days and we are projecting. I just think we're projecting pretty well. Right. But thanks for your comment, Alex. We love it. We're going to send you a mug. And if you'd like a mug, write us a comment at the .NET Rocks.com website. You know, I didn't, we didn't know whether that was going to be a tablet show or a .NET Rocks. Exactly. If, if you don't know what the tablet show is, it's at thetabletshow.com. And uh, that's all about Windows 8 and also iOS and Android development. It's about tablet development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of our new podcasts. Um, before I introduce John, I'd like to tell you that Pluralsight provides competent. <clears throat> uh, before I introduce John, I need to tell you about Pluralsight.com, our new sponsor. Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses 
authored by MVPs and industry experts such as those that appear on this show. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial where you can access their entire library, 200 minutes worth of it. Uh, Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including courses on design patterns, test-first development, object-oriented design, continuous integration, and Scrum. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let's introduce John Peterson. We're going to be talking about SOPA this hour. John Peterson has been a developer for about 20 years, from DBase and FoxBase to FoxPro2 to VB3 to VisualFoxPro, then .NET. He's written several books and spoken at developer events such as TechEd and Developer Days. In 04, he graduated from the Rutgers University School of Law with a Juris Doctor degree. Although he never completely stopped, several years ago, he returned to software development on a full-time basis. Today, John is writing for Code Magazine again and is active on the MSDN forums. He's actively participating in the Philly SQL Server.net, Alt.net, and XAML user groups. Welcome, John. Hey, guys. So we did this show before. In other words, we recorded the show before SOPA was killed, and I thought it was a great show, but we were encouraging everybody to, uh, first of all, we, we picked it apart. You know, is this really a good thing or a bad thing? And I played mm -hmm. devil's advocate a bit and just tried to flesh it out. Turns out, yeah, it was pretty broad. But um, uh, tell us tell us what this was all about. For anybody who was sort of not paying attention, why was this such an important thing, and why did... Uh, Wikipedia and the rest of the websites respond the way they did. So it's for those folks who were just freaked out by Wikipedia being yeah. down. <laughs> yes, that's right. There are there were there were billions of high school students out there that couldn't finish their homework because Wikipedia was down. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, well, and, I, and honestly, I thought that was the best part of the whole Wikipedia thing was it just reminded everybody, hey, you know the fourth most popular website in the world volunteer organization runs on a shoestring. Right. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, actually my, my 17 year old son said that it's a uh, Reddit's down. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, great. <laughs> uh, so, so what was, what was this whole thing about? Well, in a nutshell, uh, the, the, the public face of this was kind of over the whole censorship. I never really saw that. I never really saw the censorship piece to it, but from a legal perspective, what it was, uh, was a set of legislation that effectively gave a private cause of action um, to to copyright holders, as well as a cause of action to the Department of Justice um, or courts to essentially shut a site down on the mere allegation of copyright infringement. So in other words, somebody says that website's doing nasty things. There's a a quick investigation and without any due process or any jurisprudence or anything, the government has the right to pull the plug on that website. And it, and it not pull the plug on it. Right. It's, Cause it may not be on shore. Okay. Right. It, it, well, that's another, that's another matter altogether because jurisdictionally, and that's actually one of the flaws in this whole thing is there's a great many of these sites where, uh, there, there is no jurisdiction on part of the, of the United States. Right. But one thing to keep in mind is with all with all this stuff, and a lot of this was conjecture. So all you have is the text of the legislation. Yeah. Right. And what happens with all federal law is next to that, when it gets passed, is something called the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations. And basically, what that is is 
the actual regulations, the procedures that actually carry out the law. How the law will be enforced, right, essentially. Exactly. Now, none of that was really formulated yet. But there was there was a provision in SOPA that specifically talked about having a website removed from DNS. Well, yes, right. absolutely, and 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 the law the law certainly uh, accounted for that. And GoDaddy, I remember, said they were going to support it. In other words, they weren't going to fight it. If somebody said, you know, take these take these domain names out of the list or or whatever, they would say okay. And so what you had it was a mass exodus from GoDaddy, right? Right, right, exactly. And it certainly worked because GoDaddy changed, they softened their stance quite a bit. And from my perspective, looking at how this whole thing worked, something that I'd said before was, you know, if folks would spend as much time getting rallied around the voting booth as they did around this, I mean, this is... This is going to be very interesting to see how things shape up for 2012 for the rest of the year in this election cycle because yeah. it's very clear that the political pressure was was put on, on, on folks. But one thing I want to get back to real quick, again, this whole censorship piece. This is where the censorship was coming into, the fact that you could shut a site down. For me, and looking at this legally – what really shocked me was just the lack of due process. In other yeah. words, I saw the censorship as more of a, a symptom of a, of, a bigger, of a bigger underlying problem. And of course, all of us that have been in technology for years, we know that we're never going to totally eliminate piracy. Um, but one thing to keep in mind, too, is that there was sort of a corollary with this whole SOPA business, and that was that it also covered tangible goods. We think about things, other intellectual property laws out there like the D- Digital Millennium Copyright Act and other things, uh, Lanham Act for trademarks. But but this actually covered hard goods. This actually covered tangible goods as well. Imagine that you are you have for sale um, on a website fake Pradas, fake Chanel, all that stuff. Right. Well, it actually covered that too. So it wasn't just about ripping music off. It wasn't about ripping software off. You know those you know, those types of things that we typically associate with piracy and digital piracy. It's also using the uh, the internet as a means to convey pirated goods, such as the fake Viagra pills or any fake pharmaceuticals. Or- John, I want I want to get bring this back to what re- what happened with the political pressure because it sure. seems to me post SOPA that's the big story here is that this was the first civil rights protest that worked uh using the internet as pressure yep. and and it really was unprecedented i mean there was there was nothing else like i couldn't believe it i was so happy just right. because i felt empowered that wow the internet community can get together and and change laws and change the world it was like an occupy internet wasn't it yeah but it was seems to be more immediate and more effective i mean the people less rain yeah the people who are out protesting in the streets um are you know i love them and great that they're doing it and god bless them for standing up for it but uh but they don't seem to be having an impact you know the the senators and congressmen just walk right by them and then they go into the safety of their chambers where you know there's whatever uh, it just seems to me there's it's just so immediate when it's online well, this was this was definitely the clash of where economics and politics uh, all come together 
And once you saw, I, for me, the, the, the watershed moment was when uh, GoDaddy reversed or yeah, softened right. its stance because I said, okay, there you go. Because they clearly saw we're losing money here. Well, they, and they were pretty blunt about it. It was like 20,000 accounts closed right. in a week. Right. Exactly. And, and, uh, and the deal. Now, some folks made the argument out there, well, are you just going to do this for everybody? Well, you don't need to. You just need to do this in the right spots. Right. Pick your fights. Yeah. Pick your fights. Exactly. And, and you can be very, very immediate about it. And of course, all you had to do was follow Twitter and just one thing led to another. And then finally, the politicians start looking at this. And, it was interesting to, you know, Chris Dodd, who's now, you know, he's head of the Motion Picture Association of America, who was on, uh, forget which show he was on. I believe it may have been Morning Joe or it was on MSNBC. But I was, I was just aghast at the misrepresentations he was making in terms of mm -hmm. what this was. Oh, you know, one thing he said was, well, this isn't a, this, this doesn't give anybody a private cause of action. Well, that's clearly not true. Mm -hmm. And people didn't. People didn't settle for that, and they just kept fighting. and And I, and I'm with you, Carl. I, I mean, this is very a civil rights action, grassroots, um, historical, taken to the virtual streets. It's historical, and you and you wonder, you wonder where this is going to go. And 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 it's very clear to me that the politicians finally ran the calculus and said, you know, the amount of money we're getting from the recording industry and the motion picture industry that supports this, it's not enough to, it's, it's not making up for the political capital that we're losing. Yeah. When really, when right. people realize, Hey, if I vote this way, if the senators realize if I vote this way, I will not get reelected. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You know, you really yes. have to make it about their future, about their bread and butter. And that's exactly what it was. And, uh, Smith, the guy who introduced the, uh, Lamar Smith, yeah, from Lamar Texas. Smith from yes. Texas, mm -hmm. you know, after he held, he was the only, everybody else immediately the next day removed their name from the bill and he held on for a couple of days. But finally he said, and I believe it was, um, uh, when was it? The 20th, uh, I believe that he said January 20th, 2012, he said he heard from the critics and resolved that it was quote, clear that we need to revisit the approach on how best to address the problem of foreign thieves that steal and sell American inventions and products. So, you know, and, and you know, good for him because that is an admirable goal. It's just clear. And I don't think they're evil for trying this bill. I just think they, they just don't understand how the Internet works. They don't. And, and that, that's why we need people like, you know, Jonathan Zucked and at ACT to educate them a little bit about what what this means what you know what is what are you really doing here well, what well i thought the funny part was seeing some of the c-span video about them working on the bill and flatly admitting i have no idea what i'm right. writing here what we're doing here and it's like, we should probably get some technical people you, you think? think and we well, actually yes. have a friend uh of the show whose job it is is to educate these people yeah i uh i, I know that uh there was a couple very good uh, emails and, and open letters that ACT and Jonathan had written to a number of, of legislators and basically outlined, look, point by point, these are the, uh, these are the things that we find, we find objectionable. And these, you know, it was about helping. I mean, that's the one thing that really is kind of disturbing about this whole thing is that there are organizations and, and ACT is one of them. It's like, look, we'll help you. 
And right. in an organization like ACT has, well, I know that I know that Jonathan has every re- MSDN regional director on speed dial and, and you guys and, and, and a whole bunch of other people. I mean, there's people that would like to get it right and help to get it right. Mm-hmm. And it'd be nice if our government would just simply ask the right people. Right. Because there's people willing to help. Yeah, one one of the things Jonathan told us a couple of years ago when he was first on the show, and he was on a very early .NET Rocks, and he said, you know, it's just embarrassing when, when somebody's getting up there to give testimony, a senator or something, and they're reading an email, and they come to the word login and pronounce it login. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you have to remember, too, that, that these uh... – Congress, these congressmen, and especially the senators. I mean, they're flanked by staffers. Right. They, it's, it really remains to be seen just how much real work these legislators actually do. I'm sure there's a few earnest ones out there. But what really makes the Hill run are all the professional staffers that just get circulated from elected official to elected official. And it's, um, Tell you what, I mean, I, I certainly encourage anybody who has the opportunity to spend a little time down there. It, it's very eye-opening and to some degree can be extremely discouraging. But what's not discouraging is the way this bad legislation really got beat down and got beat down hard. And that's the one thing, a thud that just is reverberating everywhere. And I think it's great. Yeah, me too. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So what are the options for moving forward? I mean, obviously there's going to be another bill. You know, let me ask you this. What can we do in the meantime, between now and when this next bill comes along to help uh, people understand what the web is going. I mean, is it about blogging? Do senators and congressmen read blogs? Do we support ACT? Do we send them money? Do we actually lend our knowledge and expertise? Do we write letters? Because that's one thing that uh, Jonathan and uh, those guys asked me once in a while. Would you write a letter, please, explaining, you know, about this technical issue or whatever and how it affects your business? Can we do that? Is that something that we should do? Yeah, I I, I think that. Um... I know that for a group like ACT, I think for folks like us, we're out there consulting, we're advising clients all the time. I think the more that we can stay informed, the more we can help our clients stay informed, and the more that the more that we can get engaged, uh, the better. Because you, there's a head of steam now. You don't want to lose. You don't want to lose it. 
you you right. want to uh, keep it sustained. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm in the middle. I'm almost done the Steve Jobs biography, and there was actually an interesting part in there about iTunes and. It was 2000, 2001, when the iPod came out. And yeah. one of the recurring themes in the book is about what the iPod and iTunes was piracy. And it was a really interesting read on this section of the book because – and I thought Steve Jobs just nailed it. He's like, you know what? If we give people uh, 99 cents a song and we give people a really good friction-free experience right? and it's, it's, it's fun to use, it's easy to use, uh, people – People won't. Um, people will not rip off. You know, people are less likely to 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 to, to steal music. Give them a good experience and make it easy for them. Absolutely. So I think that uh, we're now. I think that's a great lesson right there. But then above all else, just staying engaged and letting the elected officials know that you're there because you really saw democracy in action here. So let me ask you. Um, if if you want if you were going to introduce a bill and let's say you knew it was going to get some traction about you know addressing the issue of piracy obviously nobody wants to allow free theft of intellectual property or goods or any or services or anything like that but what would you do i mean what how could, is this a is it even the legislator's place to do this well, they're the, they're the only ones that can. Is it is there legislation we can have that would be more fair, more targeted, more less broad? Look, I think SOPA and what it's attempting to do. The one thing that I think it its attempt that was really good is that it went into the world of real goods, not just uh, digital files. Yeah, and, I like that. And software and things like that. In my from my perspective, the only thing that was really missing that I thought was a real problem with soap, but was the lack of due process. Right. That some, and be, therefore competitors could use it against you on your website, could go in and leave a link to some pirate site or something like that. And then say, Hey, he's got a pirate thing on there and, and shut, have you shut down. Yeah. I, I mean, you got to have penalties. There, there have to be penalties there. I think that this is the problem that I have with some of the censorship arguments out there because SOPA was not about censorship. SOPA was about, well, if your site is deemed to be facilitating an infringing, an illegal infringement action, yeah, well, there would be no due process to shut it down. Well, that, okay, that, that's, that's a problem. So the deal is, is simply start with that. There's a lot of money invested in that. Work with industry leaders, listen to people and, and get it right. And, and the other thing I would have to say too is to the to the motion picture and recording industry, it's like, well, you're not going to get rid of piracy entirely. Some of it's a cost of doing business. You just want to de incentivize it. Right. And as that's actually an interesting that's actually an interesting thing. So here's a very specific um remedy that you could put in place because one of the theories that was floated out there was, well, you got some sites that you know they have they have Google ads or they they have a online adver advertisements such that it encourages traffic to their site. Now it may be that there could be some other folks that are incident to that site that may have some nefarious activity going on. Well, these other places are kind of turning a blind eye to it. That's for true. them. It's like right. They're paying my bills, therefore I don't care if they're nefarious or not. So here's a little legal twist. You can say, okay, we're not going to fine you. 
But what we will do is we'll disgorge the profits that you made from it. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to figure out if you strip away the DNS idiocy and you strip away the uh, due process idiocy, what was in SOPA that wasn't already in the DMCA? Uh, other than the fact that it, it uh, you know what? Uh, not much. Like, this is what I'm saying. Don't we already have this law? The DMCA gives you a clear pro. If somebody's got your copyright material on your site, you can invoke the DMCA to, to tell them you need to remove this, or I get a, I'll get a judge and we'll go to your ISP and we will shut you down. Right. So the idea. So so to, so the question is: is how did we get here? And why is this necessary? Why aren't we already? Don't we already have a law for this? We got plenty of laws. There's plenty of laws out there. And there's actually some that you, we, we're not even 100% aware of in terms of some of their details, secret treaties. That it, there's, there's a lot of intellectual property law that goes you know, with a lot of the foreign treaties that we have. But as near as I could tell, this whole SOPA business basically was just a case of where the recording industry was just really pissed off. And I think they were pissed off at the pace of which things were moving. Uh, I had mentioned earlier, I mentioned again here that um, they tried something called a, it was essentially a reverse class action. So if you look at a classical class action, it's multiple plaintiffs against one defendant sharing common injuries, part of a single or, or at right. least cognizable classes. Well, imagine if you flip that on its ear where you had a number of defendants, but the only way you could identify them was through their IP address. And that's assuming right. – and we all know in our business, well, the IP address doesn't really identify a person. Now, the recording industry wants it that way because it's like, well, we now can pressure the Verizons and Xfinities and Comcasts of the world to open up their customer records and give us – Actual account holders, so that we can then serve notice that we're going we're going to sue them because there's illegal download activity. Well, right now they got to go through a bunch of hoops, and they have to basically go down the road of getting judges to kind of make it up as they go along. You know, try something new in procedure. Maybe you get a judge to bite on it. Well, guess what? This law, if it had passed, would have fast tracked. A lot of those things because they could they would have had a procedural mechanism to them that they they currently don't have. Yep, something new to play with. When I would say taking the more cynical side to this, John, because you're being very polite about this. <laughs> Chris Dodd, former senator, now the MPA frontman, needs to prove the value of his salary to the folks who are involved in MPAA. And so scrapes together, what was it, $60 million yep. to put up a campaign to push this law through. Greases the right palms, and he's pretty much admitting he's doing this. You know, there's a whole other thing going on around that that gets this thing in process. Now, at the same time, if you're a legislator, and generally we're talking about the least popular Congress in history, and one of the reasons is they don't get anything done, says, oh boy, we get to write a new law here that we've been well supported on, and uh, then it looks like I'm doing something. Then it went horribly wrong. Follow the money, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. And but you know, there's another side to this, John, which is, is this a wake-up call for the technology industry as a whole that we should be playing the MPAA game, that we need better representation in Washington in the form of lobbyists and millions of dollars? 
We'll see. You know, lot and it, well, answer yes because you have to fight fire with fire. And I and I'm going to disagree with you later, but keep going. Right. So I think you, I think you have to fight fire with fire on this. I, I lobby. I, I have no problem with lobbyists. Lobbyists is just it, it, it is just um, it's just a, it's advocacy, right? You know, uh, like Newt Gingrich trying to say that he wasn't a lobbyist. Come on, you know, oh, yeah. you're 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 a lobbyist. You're advocating for money, and in this case. Yeah, Chris Dodd. Now, I guess what you're talking about was this was after he got those interest-free loans or those Freddie. Fre- uh, he got. I know he got some other special treatment out there, and uh, yeah, I your sentiments toward him. I was screaming at the TV listening to this guy yeah. talk. I, someone someone was asking the question. Um, I guess it was up on Twitter, and I responded to it, and it was like, well, why would why would Sher- Sherrod Brown? from Ohio be interested in something that benefits the motion picture and recording industry. I responded, go look at his campaign finance reports. Oh, look at that. He's received over half a million dollars worth of contributions from, right, from, yeah. from, from the recording industry. So ta-da, it's like follow the money. You're right. Um, if I can interrupt for a second, John, if I could, because it's time to give away a Telerik Ultimation. Woohoo! Yeah. So, do you know about our fan club, John? Uh, no, I'm not aware of the DNR fan club. It's new, and we basically uh, are asking people to go sign up for the fan club, and it's for the purpose of giving away stuff. So, every show... Telerik is giving away an ultimate collection to one lucky fan club member. Today's winner is Kirk Bauman from Murrieta, California. Woohoo! All right. Congratulations. Golf, golf clap for Kirk Bauman. Good for you, Kirk. And every year, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of technology. Yeah. In December 2012. It's going to be a big drawing. So you definitely want to join the fan club. Uh, along the way, if we have other stuff from other sponsors or tickets to tech ed or other conferences that we can give away, we will. So there you go. Uh, you know how we're, and I'm really enjoying this, at least in Washington state anyway. Every time you go, if you go to a fast food store, right, you go into the restaurant, every menu has the number of calories of each item on it. Do we have to put in a law where every single time any lobbyist or any uh, congressman says anything about anything, it's attached with the contributions from that organization? Um, just, just to give that arrow. Oh, by the way, that was worth $3 million to me. Any questions? I, I like that. I, you know, that's, <laughs> that's screaming for an iPad app. I like or, that. Nice. I, 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 you're exactly right, Carl. What we want is that news app that anytime it pulls up any political things at all, automatically does the fetch to show here's how much money and that you know, guy's got. You could combine this with the, with the one that recognizes, uh, songs. You could say, ah, oh, that's Chris Dodd. Let me tell you about him. Yeah. Yeah. Have that bio information available all the time. Now, I want to go back. Yes. And just poke on this. As much as you're saying, do we need stronger advocacy inside of uh, inside of DC, and should we be doing spending more money, essentially doing more lobbies? The real problem here is that it's out of control, right? That that the path from you know Dodd's scenario is a very normal scenario. You put some time in as an elected official, or worse still, you put some time in as a Mandarin. Like how many White House staffers put in their four years, put together their network, and then go work for a lobby group for 10 times the money they were working in the White House. It's too much money. 
Yes. It's the insanity of it all that's creating this echo chamber where we just talk to, the, they talk to each other and nobody else. And we broke it with the blackout day. The whole point, you know, my argument against us playing that game is we just broke it without playing that game. Well, and 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 just like the hackers out there, they'll find other interesting and creative ways to get around it. But the one thing money does do is it it does yeah. provide a way to uh, disseminate information and to create awareness. And it's a heck of a lot easier to do that when you have money and you have a budget as opposed to trying to do it on a shoestring. But you yeah. folks that are not going to be corrupted by it. And right, I, and I think we've come up with a technical solution to the problem. I want augmented reality that shows the sponsorship money hovering over the head of everyone. God, wouldn't that be game. awesome? Look, if it were oh, up to me, love if it. it were up to me, I'd ban all corporate donations. I'd ban all PACs. But, dude, that's against free speech. Corporations oh, are people. Don't you know? Am I curse here? Am I allowed to curse? Um, it is, You're damn that's, right. It's bullshit. It is. It is, it is <laughs> that's, that's all you got? Well, I know. But, I mean, look. <laughs> that's look, effing the, the, bullshit. It used to be, you know, it, it used to be that you'd have to put a little disclaimer on a campaign sign or literature yeah. to show who it was paid for. And it's still practice today. But you know what? There's no... You don't have to do it because it's deemed to be, well, that's that's infringing on someone's speech. I'm like, wait a uh, and it's political speech. I'm like, I that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's not speech because there's the the, the money, the money is causing major problems. Yeah, and 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 let's just let's just let's just call let let's just call a spade a spade here. The politicians in this case that really got behind SOPA. If you gave them yeah. a litmus test on intelligence on what the heck it was they were doing, they'd fail miserably. They were bought and paid for. Yeah. Just they, they they don't want to actually understand. I've got my money in my pocket. Tell me what I need to say. Surfing the web? Yeah. You ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. All right, so we know why we're re-recording this show because we recorded the original SOPA show before this whole thing went down. I want to add a new bit, which I really appreciated onto this, which was Jonathan Colton's comments around the mega oh, upload yeah. shutdown. I, yes. Because that was brilliant. So mega upload, you, you know, you walked into this very nicely, John. You talked about the fact that there's these sites that just turn a, turn a blind eye. Mega Upload's doing some legitimate business, but clearly was running an awful lot of pirated software and, and uh, music and so forth through their site. Yes. Tons and tons. And uh, somehow the U.S. government, stretching all the way to New Zealand and all over Europe, shut the whole thing down all at once, arrested everybody, and took out an awful lot of legitimate work as well as the pirated work. So, you know, the problem is there are some people that don't need uh, to worry about piracy, and then there's some people that do. And so you're going to find somebody who's just, you know, has a viral 
uh, following, like Jonathan Colton, he doesn't really care because it ha- it helps to for him to spread his stuff. He's producing music at a point where, you know, when he releases something, everybody buys it. And then maybe it gets pirated later, but he just goes and does some more and people buy it. You know what I mean? Companies that have, uh, you know, uh, subscription models where stuff just keeps the money just keeps coming in piracy or no piracy. They don't care. But it really just depends on who you are, the whether you're it, behind it, this or not. It does. It does. And you know what? It, it's uh, I I for one. I I don't I detest the fact that people would just steal music. It's like you know it's ninety nine cents for for a song or whatever on iTunes or wherever it is that you happen yeah. to go. Um, I I quite frankly would pay a ten to twenty percent premium on something if I knew that were made here or you know that it was th- that I knew that it was legit or whatever to support legitimate causes. Now all that said. It's a shame for all the all the good folks that got swept up in that, you know, in the in the, in the mega upload business. But I would also say that you know what, this it's all about incentives. People will be incentivized. You know what, just stick with folks that are legit. Yeah, is anybody not surprised that mega upload crossed the line compared to say Dropbox? Well, Dropbox, you know, Dropbox is a is sort of a passive. It's kind of a passive activity. They just sort of put it out there, and if you use it for nefarious reasons, well, they're just sort of they're ter- they fall under safe harbor, right? Uh, now they do. It seems that they do now, but you never know. I would think they would because they're passive. They're like, look, we put this out there. What you do is what you do, and and and, and they're not taking an active role in it. And Mega Upload did. Yeah, and I'm not familiar with the, the ins and outs of Mega Upload and how they got involved with that, but that certainly would be a good bright line in terms of okay, here's the line. Yeah, and and, and they they appear to be over it, and it's but I think a lot of people are just shocked that they were able to shut it down in this day and age where we believe the internet's invincible. They took Mega oh, Upload. Oh, I see. That's where I I think that if if folks. In, if the federal government really wants to shut things down and they if they if they're really dedicated to doing something like that it can i think it can be done i mean wikileaks it can be happened yeah wikileaks so got I think shut timing the timing is almost serendipitous if not intentional you know we smacked down sopa the internet's all powerful and then went well only so powerful right but the thing, you know, what I thought was brilliant about John Colton, what put him up front was he puts out this tweet that says, has anybody noticed since Mega Uploads been shut down, the bucks have just been flowing in yeah. for <laughs> selling music? Yeah, that's funny. Well, that's it a, was hilarious. That's the link that I want. I'll share with you guys at the conclusion of this. And when you post this podcast up there about is piracy is it having an adverse economic impact on the recording industry? And there's stuff right. out there that say no. There, well, in addition to the great tweet that Jonathan Colton put out, he then followed up with a blog post, and I'll include a link for folks to read it. He hit on a couple of really interesting things. One was a reference to the Swiss government study on unauthorized downloading that could not find evidence of a loss of revenue. I mean, we know that sort of intuitively there ought to be, but we know it's not that big, that most people who pirate it wouldn't have bought it anyway. You know, other than just increasing your visibility, there's really no downside to it. But he also hits on, I think, the most salient point coming back to this whole thing, you know, the thing you got to lay at the feet of the MPAA, which is make good stuff and make it easy for us to buy and we'll buy it. 
Yeah, but that I think his argument is fakakt because he's basically trying to a little bit of moral justification on the fact that what he's still doing is wrong, and he's uh, he's deflecting a bit, and and because it, it gives no justification on on what on what he's doing. At the end of the day, he doesn't have a right. He's he's dealing in, for lack of a better term, goods that he has no right to to be dealing with, and he's profiting from it. No, no, John Colton didn't run Mega Upload. No, right? yeah, he, John Colton is the musician. He was just a. He was just. He just had an opinion about it. Oh, I see. Okay, so yeah, John Colton was the musician who came up with the tweet. Hey, have you noticed this Mega Upload shut down? Have musicians, other right. musicians, noticed that since Mega Upload shut down, the money's just pouring in, right? Well, how many music? Well, I mean, I mean, Carl, uh, in your case, right? You're you're a world famous musician yourself. No, 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 no. So <laughs> I have, so, but no. I, I well, my question for here's my question for you is: Is aren't more musicians taking control of their intellectual property or just basically self publishing? Well, yes. It's a funny thing that's going on. The a lot more people have joined the ranks of recording artists with their home studios, and I'm happen to be one of those guys. And it's not a home studio, but but I'm doing it myself. And there are guys like Chris Castle, for example, a, a friend of mine who spent ten grand recording uh, an album at Levon Helm Studio with guys like Tommy Ramone and Garth Hudson from the band. And Gabriel Butterfield and me and, you know, like all star, like Americana stuff at Levon Helm studio, like the, the, the Mecca of Americana music. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and he doesn't have a record contract. He could, his stuff is great. And, and he's been hailed as a social prophet from, you know, from uh, blogs that review independent stuff. But, um, you know, he's, he, P pounds the pavement he goes and gigs constantly he sells his cds at gigs uses twitter uses reverb nation and facebook and all those things but still very much struggling but there's tons of people who are doing that whether you know whether they're good as good as he is or whatever that's that's a value judgment but there's so many more people doing it now that uh, i i think it's it's difficult for anyone to think as an artist that, you know, they're just going to put their stuff out there and everybody's going to come flocking to it. Yeah, you got to have content, but you also have to have publicity. And that's the thing that is missing in the, um, you know, that's more difficult to achieve on your own. You know, where's a record company, they, they're plugged into the media, they're, you know, Tonight Show, Conan, uh, all these other things, they can line up gigs at world-class places where you just sort of put out your stuff and everybody hears it you know what i mean so that's the thing that's missing when you when you do it yourself so your your sales aren't obviously going to be good and you can't expect to to live off of it but people still try well the one thing i would say with all this going on is you know in 10 years what kind of com what kind of conversation we're going to have in 10 years and the one thing that i the one thing that i keep thinking about and that is in seeing some of the uh, increasing government activity with respect to the web and how and how they properly deal with it. You look at a lot of property owners, like shopping mall property owners, and specifically I'm thinking of Simon Properties. If you have your premium outlets near you, Philadelphia premium outlets down in Texas, Round Rock, uh, up, you, up by you in Connecticut, Carl, I'm sure you have one of these premium outlet 
malls and Simon Properties owns those. And they've been suing, consistently have been suing state governments because Amazon doesn't tax. They're, they're not collecting sales tax everywhere. Hmm. And, and so it's not totally related to SOPA, but at the same time, what I do see from it is it's going to be a utility like everything else. I, I just wonder how much more regulation, formal regulation there's going to be, you know, when's it the FCC is going to start kicking in now yeah. on, on more things. And I guess that's, and that's really where it comes down to for us. We advise customers and clients on risk as it pertains to technology, what you can, when what you can't do. We deal with it more in the cloud. It's a more regulated environment and it's going to be even more so. And I think that's the one thing we take from it that you got to get engaged. You got to be involved. You got to be educated. And if you've got an opinion, get it out there and deal with ad- advocacy groups like ACT to to help be part of the solution and to get the right information to the people that actually have the votes to make the decisions. I actually have an idea about, um, about tax, you know, sales tax is particularly more and more irrelevant thing when people start buying stuff online. And, uh, and then there are companies that have websites in places offshore so that they can avoid laws and stuff. We just got to understand that laws are laws and what we need is world laws governing the internet. And here's what I think. I think there should be a tax, uh, a sales tax, not to, for states for internet stuff, because that's silly, right? It doesn't make any sense for states to collect income tax on internet sales, but it makes sense for countries too. And so I, I think that there should be uh, an internet tax that is essentially you have your servers in our country you get the tax for it because uh, that means that you're going to use that money for whatever it is. Maybe it's for education, whatever it is. Governments need money to do their things. But but that way, I think it gives an incentive to the countries to lure those websites to them. Do you know what I'm saying? And pr- promote comfor- uh, uh, commerce with, you know, in that country that benefits the country. So when it's, Absolutely. It gives Absolutely. an incentive. It gives an incentive to the country, to the government – to to enable commerce yeah and and you know the, to the folks that are whining and whinging about oh you know amazon's gonna it's gonna kill amazon it's like mm, no it just means i'm gonna save instead of 20 percent, i might only save 15 percent now okay you know what i'm still gonna go with amazon to buy a lot of stuff and if they're charging if they're if they're charging a tax because it is an unfair i would i concede that it's an unfair. But also to your point, thing. John, and I think this is where your connection to the MPA is, is you're seeing the battle of the brick and mortar of the old world against the battle of the digital, the new world. And there, you know, this is back to Lawrence Lessing's great site that says the old world does its best to not be left behind, you know, and and uh, litigation is the last refuge of the failed business model. Correct. And wow. they're pounding on their chest saying, Damn it, we're still relevant. We're still yeah, relevant. Yeah, we were here first, by golly. And you got a lot of money. You got a lot of you got a lot of cash and you got a lot of money and yeah, right now you're still relevant, but the deal is you're you're not going to be wouldn't relevant. Be legisl- you, don't get with the you wouldn't times. be le- uh, you wouldn't be suing if you were out competing. 
You're suing because you can't outcompete, and you've decided it's an unfair advantage rather than just a plain old better business model. And you know, you hit it on the head. Even if they do get that state that state tax put in place, Amazon will still be the preferred buyer, and they'll still go out of business. But meantime, we'll have more stupid legislation that can do more harm than right. good put in place. And we're not going to stop that. And it's there'll still be some there'll still be non value added activities going on in government, and which is why we come back to this whole pitchfork and torches you know mode with sopa and it was great you know it's like burnt you know storm in the bastille burnt yeah. burn you know you know just burn it burn it down and and it was and, and just just taking control and uh i i wonder what this will translate into because the whole occupy movement as far as i can tell is kind of i don't know what you guys think but i think it's kind of frittered out you know it's fizzled out i i don't think well this the, will. you know the occupy movement was one approach to protesting clearly some problems in and government. it did get people talking but i don't think i mean if change was going you know look at the difference like i said before in, in what happened with the uh, wikipedia's blackout and the occupy movement i mean people are talking because of the occupy movement but it's not putting immediate pressure on anybody no Unless you take the, unless you start removing, you're a direct threat to their profits, as was the case right. with uh, with GoDaddy, and that to me was the pressure point, and I think for everyone else, and it, uh, where we go from here, I, I, again, I'll say it: if people would get that motivated on election day, but I also think thinking broader. Thinking about real change in the system, because we're, we're really poking at our problems with the system. And when you think more broadly about these things, you start th saying, you know, this representative democracy model we put together came along in a time of horses. You needed a representative democracy because you needed a guy to go somewhere and represent you. And the Internet makes that pretty daft. Like, I think it's time we could start tweaking this model, and we're beginning down the path now of seeing that the masses can actually communicate and contribute to legislation in real time. I think somebody is now – are you advocating the abolition of the Electoral College? Well, the Electoral College has been a joke for a it while, is, sure. but I'm wondering if we can move from representative democracy into participatory democracy. And that's exactly what's happening here. I mean, I mean, I, I, I'll say it again, man. I feel empowered because of uh, what happened. That we, as the online community, and there's millions of us, have the power to affect real change when we get together. Well, you know, you guys, you guys represent. I mean, in terms of media, and I don't know how many listeners, tens of thousands, billions, hundreds of billions of people that listen to you. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys have a wide. Uh, international uh, space, you know, and, and a lot, lots of folks listen to what you two have to say. And, you know, one of the questions, Carl, I think you would ask is, is what we can do. And I think that you can you guys keep doing what you're doing and getting, getting the awareness out there uh, for folks, because for in the technology space, this is one of the few avenues out there where something's actually being competently talked about and yeah. and what it means to CTOs, CIOs that are perhaps listening to this, to the consultant that's got to advise a client, you know, it's it's um it's important. You guys are doing you guys are doing a good service. Well, and again, it's not just our opinions. Uh, we try to keep our opinions to a minimum except 
on a show like this where we actually get to talk about things together. But uh, but certainly our guests and uh, and and the whole discussion that follows is a, is a very valuable and important thing. And uh, so, uh, okay, I guess we'll we'll call that a show. Get in touch with uh, Jonathan Zook over at ACT. We'll leave a link. It's actonline.org, and we'll leave that on the website. John Peterson, thank you very much for joining us this hour. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. Great to talk to you. And uh, I, in a way, I'm glad that uh, we had to redo this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Thanks, man. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a